Hey guys, and welcome to the Pacing Racing Podcast, the Canadian triathlon podcast made in mind for the age group triathletes. So today we have Coach James Loring, head coach of the LPC Triathlon Club on the show to help us on episode number six of the Road to Roth training series. So for the first time listeners, a bit of a backstory here with the Road to Roth series. Now at the beginning of August, I announced I'll be doing my first full distance triathlon at Challenge Roth in 2020. And since then, I found a ton of listeners were actually on a similar path whether it was for Roth or another race, but they too were on that crazy journey to their first full distance triathlon and looking forward to hearing content specific to that distance. Now, of course, never having actually done that distance before, I figured everyone could benefit the most in a series where I interview top pro triathletes and coaches that will be able to provide a ton of training tips specific to that full distance, as well as give us that motivation and insight we need to help maximize our performances come race day. And now to introduce James, he's the president and head coach of LPC dating all the way back to 2007 and has since been an integral part of the numerous success stories throughout the team. Now, the team has won the Triathlon Ontario Club Championships the last five of the six years, and won the inaugural Triathlon Canada National Club Championships as well. Now, James has coached many ITU and long course athletes to continue on to successful professional careers, as well as stood as a head coach for Team Canada's Age Grouper ITU World Triathlon Championships over multiple years. So, I mean, because of all this, James is such a perfect fit for this episode because much like many listeners to this podcast, he knows the daily struggles for age groupers to balance quality training and recovery with work life, family life, and social life. And in today's episode, we'll hear all about Team LPC, what the benefits are part of training in a team environment, and what we can do as age groupers to help best prepare for a full iron distance triathlon, such as Challenge Roth. Now, I'm really excited for this one, guys, and I could keep going on all day, but it's probably best to hear from James himself. So without further ado, let's cue the music. So the first sponsor of today's show is Soul Fitness Canada, who is a premier global name in the fitness industry and has become one of the fastest growing fitness brands across the U.S. and Canada. And the reason why I'm so excited for Soul Fitness Canada to be the show sponsor is because all of you know, we are unfortunately nearing the end of summer, which means as a proactive thinker, I have to start thinking about indoor training. And with Challenge Roth just under 11 months away, we're ramping up the volume and running, which requires a treadmill that I'll be able to spend countless hours on. So with lots of research, I found a brand that I can stand behind for their value, quality, and their service. And I'm excited to say that I ended up actually getting the TT8 treadmill from Soul Fitness Canada. And so you'll definitely be seeing lots of this treadmill guys in the pacing racing videos. And I can't wait to put some miles on the inside the paint cave. And now you may ask, how did I end up choosing Soul Fitness Canada over all the other brands? So for those who don't know, Soul has a full line of treadmills, ellipticals, and exercise bikes, and has been in the industry for decades and is a popular brand well over 29 countries. They are one of the only manufacturers to warehouse all their parts and products in Canada and host a fully bilingual customer service team. And to briefly touch on the treadmill I went with, it offers up to 15 levels of incline, six levels of decline with speeds up to 12 miles per hour. It has accurate heart rate monitoring with both pulse grips and chest strap options. And the TT8 features a large 22 inch by 60 inch running surface, handlebar mounted speed incline buttons, inboard speakers, and a cooling fan and so much more guys. So these are all important factors for me when I went looking for a treadmill. And another thing that may resonate with the listeners is it's not just for winter training. In fact, I have a daughter that's 19 months old and who happens to love her nap time. So I love the idea that I'm able to go for a long run on the treadmill while she sleeps. And I think this is a great way for effective time management for the time crunch triathletes out there. So if any of you are in the market for treadmills, bikes, rowers, or ellipticals, or any of that stuff, pour your pain cave, then head to soulfitness.ca forward slash pacing and racing. And again, soul is spelled S-O-L-E. And if you guys have any questions on products, then you definitely shoot me a DM and I can help guide you into a treadmill that would suit your needs. So Soul Fitness is providing Pacing Racing listeners a free equipment mat with any cardio equipment they purchase from the website, which is a $50 value. So that's super cool of them, guys. And all you have to do is type in Pacing and Racing during checkout. So the second sponsor of today's show is Echelon Wheels, which is a wheel manufacturer based right out here in Ontario, Canada. Now, I'm happy to find a wheel company like Echelon for so many reasons. And as we mentioned, this is being a Canadian podcast. I love to have partnerships with other Canadian brands. And who better than have a wheel company that offers top quality designs and materials for a wheel set, but at a fraction of the cost compared to other brands in the market. And how I mean to put this into perspective, the Echelon Fold Disc is going for around $14.99 Canadian, whereas some other brands on the market are selling full discs for upwards of $3,300 US dollars. Of course, every wheel set's going to be different, but as an age grouper, we all know that sport is super expensive. So it's nice knowing there are brands out there like Echelon that are able to keep those costs down for us as much as possible. 
And the neat thing about Echelon is that they're active cyclists who actually run the company. So they know they're not just making products, they're actually using their products for their passions. And if you look at the products they carry, they offer wheel selections for U-profile, V-profile, and offer depth ranges from 38 millimeter all the way up to the full disc. So if you're curious about my bike setup, I'm currently running with a 60 millimeter Echelon wheel in the front and an 88 millimeter Echelon wheel in the rear with DT Swiss hubs. And I just recently spent a few days with the team from Echelon Wheels doing some speed testing videos. I can't wait to share those with you guys because it really gives a great practical look at just how much a wheel set can actually make a difference in your racing. Now, if you want to see this video, then definitely go ahead and subscribe to that Pace Racing YouTube channel to be first notified when that comes out. And Echelon isn't just only the partner of the Pace Racing podcast, but they're also huge supporters of some big clubs out there like Team LPC and Hugh Dog Racing Team. And for a limited time, they've been super awesome. And they've even offered up a discount to the Pace Racing listeners. So if you want to look at getting yourself a wheel set, then head to echelonwheels.ca and use promo code PACING and RACING. And I'd also recommend following them on Instagram or Facebook by searching at Echelon Wheels. Again, Echelon is spelled E-C-H-E-L-O-N. And if you use that promo code PACING and RACING at checkout, you get $100 off your wheel set purchase, which is a really neat perk, guys. So definitely take them up on that. And now, enjoy the show. So, James, welcome to the Pace Racing Podcast, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, no, thanks so much for coming on the show. Obviously, I'm super happy to have you on here today. And there's lots to talk about, especially with preparing for a race such as Challenge Roth, like we were just speaking about. But before we dive into all those specifics, uh, just for the listeners who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about the background uh, with yourself in triathlon and inevitably how Team LPC came about? Yeah, sure. So, um, I did my first triathlon. Uh, this is going back a few years, uh, I believe 1993, and it was the Kids of Steel Leamington Triathlon. And uh, I've, I grew up in Windsor uh, up until age 30. So Leamington is uh, is only about a 40 minute drive from Windsor, and there were many triathletes in that area. It was kind of a hotbed for triathlon, and, and it may have been one of Canada's first hotbeds in triathlon because you had uh, the Najiv family that had several that were, uh, you know, re- uh, on the, the national team and, and Kirsty Najiv, who was uh, formerly Kirsty Otto, um, she uh, still lives in Leamington. And then you have the Marachis and the Tranners and, and, and several other families. Uh, so I, I got my introduction into the sport of triathlon uh, through them. And Although 1993 seems like a long, long time ago, it, I didn't actually really hear about the sport of triathlon until that until the age of 16. Um, despite being a competitive swimmer uh, for many years prior to that, and also being a, a track and field athlete as well, so when I finally did my first kids of steel triathlon, I was uh, hooked right away, um, and uh, just became very uh, passionate about the sport and. Um, and kind of worked my way through the the junior ranks and raced as an age grouper for a couple of years before I finally did my first uh, elite level race. And I was fortunate to race at the ITU level for uh, from about 2002 to about 2007. And I found that I was always just even, although I really enjoyed racing and training, I found that I was even more passionate about helping others and, uh, and, and just learning about the sport. Uh, so I think that the, the racing and the training evolved into coaching and, the LPC, which stands for learning personal coaching, uh, was born in 2007. And, uh, since that, uh, since that year in 2007, I was full-time into coaching and, uh, the, the LPC team has, grown uh, a little bit each year and there's uh, five coaches on the team and we have approximately a hundred athletes of all ages and abilities uh, a lot of them in Ontario but uh, some of them are in the US in Europe we've got one in Australia so we're, we're, we're sprinkled all over and it's been a lot of fun just seeing the team grow over the years and uh, kind of living vicariously through their success in their racing and, and also reminiscing, you know, 
back in the back when I used to race several years ago. Yeah, it's really cool to hear. And it's amazing to kind of see how much LPC has grown. And I mean, perfect example, like you just sort of mentioned that you guys have close to 100 athletes. And I think that's pretty amazing. We've actually had a couple of your athletes on like Matthew Fong and Jackson Laundry, and they came on the podcast and they spoke very highly of the team. And it's great because with the team, you have options to do some training in the team environment, but you also have coaches that can also structure your training plans individually, correct? Because it sounds like like you just said there, most are in Ontario, but you also have some like in Australia and the States. So you don't necessarily have to be in the area to be on the team, right? Yeah, absolutely. So LPC, it uh, provides both uh, personalized uh, web-based and in-person coaching services. And uh, I live in Guelph, Ontario. And, and, and Guelph, Ontario is, 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 a, is a wonderful hotbed, uh, as, you, as you know, uh, where there's, there's several different um, uh, uh, triathlon clubs just in inside of Guelph and it's an amazing community where we all kind of work together and collaborate with each other and several LPC athletes live in or near Guelph but probably about two-thirds uh, live at least an hour drive outside of Guelph and obviously some many many hours outside of Guelph where we won't get a chance to see them too often in person, uh, maybe at occasional races or a camp or a clinic. Um, but there, there are several that uh, have chosen to, to move to Guelph or they live nearby Guelph and we do have occasional group training sessions. Um, but a lot of LPC is, is definitely web-based uh, where there are five LPC coaches and uh, you mentioned Matt Fong as one of the, one of our junior athletes that was on, that was on your your wonderful podcast. He's coached by Dave Hopton, and um, Dave Hopton is an XITU athlete who's now uh, a full-time coach. And then uh, Jackson Laundry was also on your your podcast. He when he started LPC as a, as a junior athlete, as a as an up and comer, you know, didn't have a whole much of a triathlon background, didn't really have a swimming background, and he kind of immersed himself into this Guelph triathlon culture and it's been uh, amazing to see athletes such as matt and jackson progress yeah no exactly 100 percent. and so it's funny when you mention guelph and how i've always said from the beginning it's it's definitely like the mecca here in ontario one of the meccas for sure for you know just a lot of quality triathletes out there and it's a great spot to be and i remember asking jackson i said what's what's with the water out there in guelph because obviously they're putting out some really strong athletes specific to triathlon so it's pretty funny to see that but no that's just it right so you guys have just a good strong community within guelph and you guys are able to train together you have some great coaches and what i like about that is that how you guys keep things web-based too because myself for perfect example i kind of live quite a ways away from there so it's not like we have tons of coaches just nearby uh, outside my doorstep right so it's nice to have those options for people who are a little more remote that are able to you know still feel part of a team and they can still meet up with the teammates at races or like you said camps and uh, clinics that sort of thing and that's actually something I wanted to ask you too is about you know you have a lineup of great coaches you said there uh, and you guys also do a lot of training camps um, there's some bike time trial days swim analysis clinics and can you just sort of expand on a few of those kind of things you do for the team yeah, so um, Lauren Personal Coaching, it offers both the, the web-based and the in-person coaching services. And some of the, the in-person coaching services would be, we have uh, monthly swim video analysis sessions, which take place at one of the pools in Guelph. And uh, our, our first one is actually on Kona Saturday, uh, Saturday morning. We make sure we, we get it all wrapped up before the Kona coverage <laughs> begins and um, it's just the fall's a great time of the year for many athletes to start to think a little bit more about the technical side of swimming where you know during the racing season where we're often more focused on on building fitness or or or, or try specific swim fitness and and not you know maybe concerned as much about oh let's maybe take a look about the take a look or a closer look at the two to three areas we you know we should be focusing more uh with respect to improving our efficiency or 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 the mechanics of our stroke so so the swim video analysis sessions are 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 good for um for our athletes to to do but we we make it open for anyone so it doesn't have to just be an lpc coached athlete or an lpc member and um we will do some power-based bike testing sessions whether it be via Swift or, a, you know, a 20 minute time trial on one of our comp trainers. So 
we'll do a few of those sessions uh, through the winter time. Um, one of the LPC coaches is Coach Mark Linsman, and uh, he provides hydration and fueling analysis sessions where, uh, where especially if you're an Ironman athlete or, or you're training for a long course and, you know, if you're racing Kona or if you're racing Roth or, you know, it's a, a good opportunity to take a closer look as to exploring what might be a, a good fueling option for you and, and not getting too, too meticulous on a, on a hydration or fueling plan, but meeting with, with Mark and doing a hydration test might help to figure out just, you know, what, what your sweat concentration uh, levels are. And that might help to give impl implications as to what kind of hydration strategy might be, uh, might be good for you, depending on what race you're, you're training for and, and what the climate of that particular race might be. And then we also offer um, a time trial series, which is one of our highlights where we have three time trials on the big holidays on which is Canada Day, Victoria Day, Labor Day. And this is where it really brings out a lot of the community um, of cyclists and triathletes. So we had we had Ed Veal uh, break uh, our course record <laughs> where he's uh, the, the current, uh, I think he's the, or, or was the Canadian time trial record um, or the one hour record, I should say. So it was so much fun having some top cyclists come out, battle with some of the top triathletes, uh, top triathlete cyclists like Cody Beals and Jackson Laundry and Taylor Reed and, and several others. Uh, so, so we have a lot of fun uh, putting these three grassroots time trials and, and they're open to all levels and abilities. And um, we have an annual tri camp in Florida, uh, in Orlando and Claremont. And that's usually around the, the, uh, the, the second week of March each year. And that's always a highlight to have a lot of our athletes and, and, and non-LPC athletes attend. It's a big camp. It usually has about 50 participants out and about eight coaches. So it's just a wonderful week where we can give a lot of hands-on uh, attention to some of our remote athletes that we don't get a chance to see in person very often. Yeah, no, that's very cool. See, that, that's what I love is that there's so many different avenues that you could take. And so, you know, some athletes might be fine, you know, training with the bike and the run, but they, they want that extra swim analysis with the swim per se. So you guys offer, you know, a specific clinic for that. So there's just so many cool different options and avenues you can take with the team. So I was, I was really intrigued by it. And one of the things I actually want to ask about specific to the swim analysis clinic what do you find are some common problems identified by athletes who tend to come in their swim analysis clinic for the first time? Are there always sort of something that stands out with a lot of new swimmers who haven't had the correction before? Uh, yeah, there is, there is definitely a couple of common themes where uh, if, if the participant is, uh, is an improving triathlete and that their, their main focus is not going to be say swim races or master swim competitions, but it's going to be, uh, triathlon competitions, you know, we're, we've got that interesting dynamic where we're trying to prepare for an open water uh, race, uh, an open water environment. Uh, so there's interesting dynamics with that when the gun goes off and you're starting with many others at the same time. Uh, so, and, and if you're swimming in open water, in open water choppy environment, it can definitely lead to uh, a different swim stroke than if you have your own lane in a swimming pool. So we're seeing a lot of summers where they maybe get some, some well-intentioned advice uh, that, you know, they should try to maximize uh, distance per stroke, for example. And then when we see them with an underwater video camera and we put it in slow motion, we see, we see some inefficiencies with their stroke mechanics because they're making a big effort to try to maximize distance per stroke. Uh, so a lot of advice we're, we're, we're giving is that, when they're going at mid-race pace in a triathlon environment in, a, in an open water swim, uh, building that stroke rate uh, up to an acceptable level is, is, is often some, some advice. Um, but it really depends on where they are in their, their swim background. If someone's really a beginner, then often the focus is more on just getting more comfortable in the open water and, and learning to breathe a bit better and, and learning to utilize their core uh, a lot better. And we're not going to get too, too much into the 
details of of what the the limbs are doing, what the what the hand, what the legs and the and the arms and the catch because they're maybe not quite there yet. We need to focus first more on the core and the breathing and just getting more comfortable. If it's more of an intermediate swimmer and they tend to have pretty good body position, they tend to have pretty good core, they tend to be breathing okay, uh, then you know we often like to focus a little bit more on, well, how's your catch? How's your entry? Uh, that, that elusive EVF, which stands for early vertical forearm, which you see if you do YouTube videos, right? You get to see some of the the top elites have a have a beautiful catch under the water, and that's always a challenge for for most triathletes and swimmers to try to emulate. Uh, so by taking underwater video capture and and showing it to that athlete in slow motion and giving some feedback on two to three areas, that helps them to paint a picture of what they need to do when they when they when they start you know practicing more more swimming in the winter time. But we're definitely more focused on what the athlete is doing with their stroke under the water than what they're doing above the water. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that's a really cool clinic you guys put on because I think many triathletes may or may not realize, realize that they still have a lot of room for improvement in their swim if they haven't uh, been focusing on it, like you said, come back from a competitive swimming background or, or something like that. So that's, uh, it's always really cool to see. And is that open to non-LPC triathletes or is that just something you guys specialize just for your, your team that you guys put on? Uh, it's open to anyone. Yeah. So it, um, it, it doesn't even, it could be a triathlete, it could be a swimmer, um, does not have to be an LPC coached athlete or member. Perfect. There you go. And then, so now looking, because you mentioned the Florida training camp, and I'm just kind of curious about that. And for others who are, are curious of what a typical camp looks like, if they haven't been to one, uh, what type of things do you guys run through in a given week down in Florida? Uh, yeah, so we, um, the camp uh, is, is a lot of fun because it's, it's, it's in Orlando or, or Kissimmee. Uh, so it's close to Disney World. So it's close to all the restaurants. And uh, uh, so it, it it's not just a hammer camp where it's all about trying to do as much training as possible in a one week period. Um, so there, there is some time to do some fun stuff like going out shopping or, or going out to eat. Uh, and, and some of the main goals is just to have a, a, a wonderful warm weather getaway where you can learn from not just coaches, but we have a lot of our professional athletes attend as well. And there's all different levels of ability. And one of my favorite things for us to do throughout the week is where we swim. We swim in a 350 meter lazy river pool. So for a lot of the Ontario athletes that were staring at a line, you know, swimming in a 25 meter or yard pool all winter long, it's just a wonderful opportunity to have a much more tri-specific dynamic where you get to swim in this really big 350 meters, one lap of this, uh, of this big pool and it meanders. So it, it meanders throughout that 350 meters. So you get to, it forces you to practice your navigation uh, skills and your drafting skills. And uh, we, we really enjoy swimming in that pool. Um, but we also enjoy going to the national training center for, uh, for, you know, a, a, a hill workout and a pool workout where we capture video. And, uh, and then we have a couple of seminars in there where, where coach Alex Coates will, uh, talked last year about um, iron deficiency and uh, and Mark Linsman touched upon uh, uh, hydration and fueling and Ryan Power uh, gave um, uh, a talk about free speed opportunities for cycling and also uh, maintenance and mechanical uh, tips for cycling. So so it, it really is a camp where there's a lot of learning and fun taking place, but certainly also a lot of uh, training as well. Perfect. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I, I love to hear that. Sounds sounds like it's very beneficial, but also, like you said, the main thing is it's not just a hammer fest, right? You're you're getting out, you're enjoying your time there too. Um, after all, you're in Florida, so I think that that's pretty cool. So, I mean, it's amazing to see here because throughout the races in Ontario here, you always see a great turnout of LPC athletes, and it's become a well-known, respected team. And what stood out to me, as you've already kind of touched on there, that it, the team consists of a lot of age groupers, they have pro triathletes, there's draft legal ITU, uh, all the way up to long course athletes. And, and you even have something called the LPC hurdle project. So I know we haven't touched on that yet. So would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what the hurdle project's all about? So yeah, the hurdle project, um, the first year of it was 2014. So 
we're entering the seventh year and it's evolved a little bit each year. And uh, essentially the Hurdle Project, it's a support program and squad for elite athletes, uh, future elites, uh, so junior and, and U23. But also there's a few age group athletes on there that we can that we consider young professionals who are, you know, uh, very passionate about about uh, training hard, but also are either a student or they're uh, working part time or full time, but they're they're under the age of, of 30. Uh, and the primary objective of this hurdle project is to help support, and develop and recognize these athletes by providing them with personalized coaching, uh, both in-person and web-based coaching. And uh, this personalized coaching is really focused on trying to harvest each individual athlete's potential. Uh, the, the Hurdle Project also provides this wonderful, healthy, and encouraging team culture, this atmosphere where each individual is, um, you know, the, the success of both the individual and the team are celebrated. And the Hurdle Project also just provides the opportunity to uh, get some other, some sponsors involved uh, to, to help provide these aspiring athletes with discounted or free of charge uh, product, equipment, and services as well. And uh, our Hurdle Project currently has, uh, I believe, 24 athletes and roughly about a third of that of them are elite level uh, racing either at the ITU level or in uh, in half iron or full iron distance competition so so the the elite athletes tend to be split between ITU or uh, non-drafting um, at uh, short course and long course racing and then about a third are are what we classify as future elites, and they are our top juniors and U23 athletes. And then the the other third are age group level athletes. They're they they most of them are are quite pointy end at the age group level, and they're under 30 years of age. And they could be they some of them are uh, you know pursuing their PhD or their masters or in, or their undergraduate or they're recently graduated and they're working full time, and um, they they still kind of classify as our as an ambassador type um, athlete on our Herd of Project team. So it's been a lot of fun having this Herd of Project team, which, and, and the Herd of Project team is really only about 25% of the LPC athletes, but they're the ones that, you know, tend to get a lot of attention in social media and in, in, in the press because uh, some of them are, are racing fairly well at an elite level, or some of them are racing fairly well as, uh, you know, one of Ontario's top, top junior level or U23 athletes. And the main purpose of that hurdle project is really just to try to, you know, help to support these, these aspiring athletes and, uh, and to try to, you know, help guide them through uh, their triathlon career. For sure. No, that's really cool. And see, I love to see that about the hurdle project. And, you know, one thing in particular about triathlon, uh, I guess one of the unfortunate things about triathlon is that, you know, the barrier of entry, uh, you know, the cost is quite high, I guess, compared to some other sports. And so for a student per se, just going through college university, uh, just trying to keep up with it, with the race registrations, with equipment, all that sort of thing, it, it definitely helps and goes a long way. So if they're able to have a team like the hurdle project to kind of help them through and, you know, you guys work closely with sponsors, that sort of thing. So I think that can go a long way with a lot of these athletes who may not be able to otherwise do so if they didn't have that extra support. So I think the thing like the hurdle project is really cool. And I think I'm glad to see that it's doing so well and that so many athletes are, are thriving off it. So that's very cool. Yeah, no, it's been a lot of fun, um, you know, seeing the, the, the athletes uh, progress and there's other programs in, in Ontario that, you know, and other, other tri clubs that also have some, some great programs as well that are, you know, helping to develop these, these future stars in the, in the sport. And as you mentioned, there are some barriers to entry and, and, and it is an expensive sport. So uh, anything that we can do to try to help to, uh, offset that that cost, uh, you know, some of the triathlon equipment, or if we you need to get a bike fit, or if you you know need need some um, you know, sport drink, um, things like that can can all add up in a hurry. So it's it's just amazing to to have uh, a few sponsors, you know, help these these aspiring athletes and and help to minimize the cost. Um, you know, uh, in, in this sport and, and also just providing this program just to help progress these athletes through the wonderful learning curve that the sport of triathlon presents. 
Yeah, no, exactly. That That's really cool. I'm happy to hear about that. And so, I mean, switching things up a little bit here as we dive into a little bit more training purposes, I guess, uh, you know, as, as we mentioned, we talked about challenge Roth here. Have you had any of your team athletes uh, ever compete in Roth? And was there any, if you dealt with them in the past, was there any specific training that you found helped them prepare for the given course or the conditions of Roth? Yeah. So Roth, obviously, you know, one of the iconic races, uh, of our, of our sport. Um, and, uh, I believe the currently what the two fastest iron distance performances, uh, by, uh, uh yeah, Wellington and, um, and for Deno, I believe on the men's side. Uh, so Roth is obviously famous for being a pretty fast course and, uh, but, an amazing atmosphere. And uh, over the years, we haven't had too many LPC athletes participate at Roth, despite that being a huge bucket list race. A lot want to do it, but I think it's, I think it, a lot more will have, would have done it um, and, and will do it if the timing worked out a little bit better. Um, with Roth always being in July, our, that's just a, you know, uh, the prime time domestic uh, the domestic, uh, you know, when you look at, when you look at the domestic triathlon calendar in Ontario, there's some great events right around that time. So, so for a lot, it's just, it, it's often not feasible for them to, to go to a destination race in Europe, uh, during that time. But for those that have been able to do it, they've spoken extremely highly of the, of the incredible atmosphere that, uh, this iconic race presents. Um, as with all races, you know, we, we, we tend to look at, well, what, what, what's the course profile? What's the climate like? And then, uh, you know, how can we prepare for these dynamics? And uh, with Roth, the, the timing of it being in July, uh, the nice thing is, is that you often can prepare for that race, um, you know, without doing, you know, anything really specific, uh, where if you're you know, trying to prepare for say like an early season race in, in April, or if you're trying to prepare for a Kona, that often presents some, some extra challenges for a lot of people, depending on where they live. But for a race like Roth, if, you know, if our athletes live in Ontario, um, then we can prepare for, for the dynamics of that race fairly, fairly easily. Uh, you know, when they, we're able to to get open water swimming um, at one of the nearby lakes. We can we can train for the specifics of of Roth, which is for the most part a pretty flat. Uh, you know, it's a two loop flat course with a bit of a climb in there, and uh, we can prepare for that for that dynamic. We can prepare for for the runs. So, uh, in terms of what the what the training is, well, I guess it just depends exactly on. What what the where the athlete is coming from is it is it their first iron distance race, um, you know do they have much experience uh, in the sport of triathlon? Uh, have they done many half iron distance races at all? Which can you know get, give some wonderful insight as to as to you know how to approach the hydration and the fueling and the pacing uh, uh, that that a beast like an iron distance race uh, commands and. Uh, also, just the athlete itself, how much time do they have available? Um, you know, I've coached some athletes where they might be a teacher, they might be a professor, and then a race like Roth in July, it's, you know, they'll have a lot more time in, uh, you know, if they're a professor, say that they'll have a lot more time in the months of May and June to prepare. But if they're, if they've got, you know, a job with family, uh, that, that obviously the, the life's priorities presents some challenges for, an athlete preparing for an early July race and uh, how much time available they have to devote to getting the long runs in, getting the, the bikes in um, can, can, uh, can often be a challenge for, for, for what's a fairly early season iron distance race. So the, the training leading in really depends on uh, the athlete's background, uh, how much time avail availability that they might have, um, how durable of an athlete they are, uh, you know, how much your recovery should, should place an importance. And, uh, there's in many other variables as well, uh, will dictate, you know, the, the specific training for, for that individual leading into this event. For sure. Yeah. So you brought up a ton of really great points there. So I'm actually, I'm glad to kind of hear all that. And like you said, hundred percent, that's the thing about training, especially, I mean, particularly as well for the full iron distances, it's going to be individual 
for every other athlete out there. Right. So I think that's why it comes in so handy to have a coach. I know you and I have talked about this a lot in the past fairly recently here that because there's so many variables, it's not just as easy as getting a a cookie cutter template and just following here's in the steps to training for a full iron distance. So it requires a lot of consideration into some of those variables like you just mentioned there. So I mean, without getting too into detail, I guess for this question, but uh, using myself as the case study, uh, of course, Roth is, you know, just about nine months away, give or take. Where would an athlete start to look at building their basic plan? Like, where would they start, I guess? So uh, taking myself where we know we've done a couple half Ironmans this year, this would be the first full iron distance coming up in Challenge Roth. So when it comes to things like periodization or building the training volume up to the full iron distance, uh, without things like burning out too early or overdoing it, is there anywhere that the athletes can have a starting point and then kind of build up from there based off how they feel? Yeah, I think that part of it depends on where the athlete lives. If they live in Ontario, then Mother Nature often dictates maybe uh, you know how much well, we might venture outside, especially on the bike. Uh, so I'm not a huge fan of having an athlete do six-hour bike rides on the trainer. I, you know, some really enjoy it and they, they love to do long, long stuff and long volume, uh, in, indoors on the trainer. But for a lot, it, 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 it's not feasible for many. And, uh, therefore the winter time tends to be a really good time to do a bit more, uh, high end quality training. Uh, Zwift has been a wonderful platform where a lot of people, you know, enjoy, uh, riding hard through the Zwift platform, but it's just a great time of the year for many, whether they're a short course athlete or a long course athlete to do uh, some, some highly polarized or high end uh, training on the bicycle, especially in, in the winter months, knowing that if you're getting ready for a July Ironman and the weather starts getting a lot nicer for you to venture outside more in April, May, uh, you're going to be doing more volume, um, maybe more training specific to the the pacing or the watts that you might be employing in in an iron distance race. So, in, as you get closer and closer to the race, then you might get a bit more specific with your training. So, specificity tends to reign supreme as you get closer and closer to the iron distance race. And therefore, when you're a long ways away in the wintertime, it might be a great time to, to do things a little bit differently, uh, to introduce a you know, different stimuli and uh, a bit more of a polarized approach or higher end intervals in, in, in the winter months are good. Now, as we're talking, it's the fall. Uh, I find with a lot of my athletes, I'm holding them back a little bit. Uh, if they want, you know, maybe they finish their tri-season. Let's say they finish their tri-season with the Barrelman uh, triathlon uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they've had a little bit of downtime. Uh, at some point, they'll start to ramp back up again. But I find that with a lot of athletes, I'll, I'll hold them back a little bit or try to hold them back a little bit in the fall, knowing that July is still many, many months away, knowing that we're going to be doing some really good productive work over the winter months and and we want it to be we want the training to be sustainable so you don't want to hit it too hard in the fall because it just might not be sustainable uh you know and carry to carry and keep carrying building that fitness all the way to july so so i think it's important to go through certain phases where where it's a little bit unstructured and not too too stressful or the the overall training load of each week isn't isn't too high uh for for many in the fall and then over the winter time because the volume might not be super high, especially on the bike, that tends to be a really good time for many uh, that are gearing up for a summer race to do some good productive work on, on the bike um, with, without the hours being too high. And then as you get closer to that race, definitely trying to emulate uh, the, the conditions of the race. Uh, so getting outside a little bit, trying to get into the open water, um, you know, getting used to the, the course profile and, and what the climate is going to be, um, getting some longer stuff in so that, you know, you, on a, both a psychological and, and physiological level, you'll feel prepared to try and conquer that long distance. Perfect. Yeah. So that actually helped explain a lot of these questions I had in my mind. But so, I mean, taking what you just said there with having some of that high quality training in the winter and then kind of being more race specific and introducing volume as we're able to kind of, you know, get outdoors in those early spring, spring months. Now, when it comes to things like heart rate zone training, I'm not, not too sure if you, if you do that with your athletes or not, but 
One of the kind of things you hear around that training is uh, building that aerobic foundation at that zone two, that low heart rate in order to sustain that for the full iron distance. I'm just kind of curious to see what your take is on that. And is that something that we would start doing in the the springtime? Or is that something that, you know, if you don't have that foundation built, is that something you should be incorporating in your, your winter training, you know, several months out? Yeah. So we're, you know, we're, we're now 2019 and it's been exciting to see like the evolution of, you know, what we have at our disposal to use in with respect to technology. And there's just so many things that uh, we can use and that we can analyze. And um, despite being in the sport and, and, and actually I think I, I, I started training with heart rate and, and, and power uh, since 19, right when I started to get into the tr- sport in 1993, I was fortunate where my first coach, Dan Murray, uh, who was a, a local uh, elite triathlete in, in LaSalle, Ontario, he was one of the very first to use CompuTrainer and he used it in conjunction with heart rate. And he, he really employed a, a scientific based approach to his training. So I, was, I kind of lucked out a little bit where where I, I had that first coach not really knowing much about the sport, really have kind of a scientific-based approach. And uh, that was back in the days when we didn't have training peaks and he would use a fax machine to fax me uh, <laughs> the weekly workouts. Um, and what's interesting is as I've, I find it with each year as I evolve with more and more into the sport and with coaching, the more and more I find I get less technical and I try to just go back to keeping it as simple as possible and asking myself the question, do we really need to focus a lot of our attention on what's our heart rate at at this moment in time? Um, And the reason for that is I find that with heart rate, especially there's just so many variables involved. Uh, You know, you can get natural cardiac drift where as you're fatiguing a little bit, your heart rate is going to drift away from pace and, and there might be some some good reasons to to monitor your heart your heart rate, especially if you're you're training in in, in in you know in a bit in a very hot humid climate. But I find for interval trainings and interval training and, and just throughout a lot of the training process, heart rate does have some setbacks and, and it sometimes overcomplicates things a lot. So so I tend to steer away a lot from trying to establish heart rate training zones or, or putting a lot of emphasis and merit into trying to spend a certain amount of time in each, each heart rate zone. And instead, I try to um, work with the athlete to, to learn more on how on perceived exertion and instead to focus more on on different zones or levels of perceived exertion and not so much heart rate. And by focusing more on perceived exertion, you're not just taking into account your cardiovascular system. You're also taking into account your musculoskeletal system, your, your immune system, how you're feeling at a particular period in time. Are, are you, if, if, you know, if you're, if your muscles are really, really tired on this long run, because maybe you did a, a long, hard bike the day before, then going by heart rate zones might be a little bit misleading. And instead, what should be more of a guide or more of a driver with respect to your pacing strategy for this particular workout, perceived exertion often should reign supreme over what uh, device is telling you your heart rate is at a particular moment in time. So I, the bottom line is I think that there's definitely some merit in, in, in occasionally monitoring heart rate monitor. But I think that some of us can can tend to be a little bit over meticulous with it at times and and allow it to drive our pacing strategy or or training training a little bit too much and and then what might be the best approach a lot of the time is just to try to keep it simple and get in in more in tune with how we're feeling in a particular workout for sure no that's perfect and you know what i've actually heard a lot of you know some of those top coaches out there as well say you know similar things like it's just it's a matter of keeping things simple and and heart rate zone training although you know the concepts out there and it's been it's been great but yeah i mean sometimes people rely too heavily on that or that might alter the way they should be training just due to so many variables so i think you uh really made good points on that and so i guess just to play you know continue off of that question when we talk about power meters i know power meters although it's tech there's also some really beneficial spots to use that as well um but i just kind of want to get your take on that too when it comes to training uh like for athletes with power meters or even considering going out and buying a power meter, how should they start incorporating this into their training if they've never used power meters and power ranges before? 
do you structure your athletes with power meters in their training or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So although, uh, although I might not uh, place as, you know, a big emphasis on heart rate zones, um, because I, as I mentioned, there's so many variables involved. Uh, I do feel that uh, there is a lot of merit for many to train with the power meter um, where it can be a, a bit more accurate with, with, um, uh, with respect to the physiological cost of a workout. So it, 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 there won't be say a lag where heart rate might lag an effort. You know, if you go and do intervals, then your heart rate might lag the effort. Whereas the nice thing about power, it's, it gives that instantaneous feedback as to exactly how much load that there is at any particular moment in time. So I do think that there, there is a lot of merit with training with the power meter. I think that the barriers were, were high, uh, back in the day when I was racing, when I was first introduced to training with the power meter back in 1993. Uh, we didn't have as many options. Uh, power meters were very expensive. Now that the price has um, come down quite a bit and the technology has improved, and uh, I think it's a lot more accessible to, to all levels to um, begin to uh, invest into training with power. And I think that there's merit in, tra- in you know, training on a smart trainer occasionally. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to purchase a power meter. You can, you can use the Zwift platform and use virtual power. And there's so many trainers on the market now that are compatible with estimating this virtual power. And that can, that can really help provide some, some motivation and also uh, some, some good learning throughout uh, training in the wintertime. Um, for those that have the budget, if they wanted to invest into an onboard power meter for their bike, there's so many options available and, and going with the power meter that can uh, calculate both your left leg and your right leg. So uh, what we call dual power, that's obviously going to be the, the the best power meter to get. And it's only really in the last couple of years where, where those dual power meters have, have become reasonably affordable for the masses to get. And I do think that especially training for long course racing, there's a lot of merit that can be gained by training with the power meter to help to learn uh, pacing and to try to minimize this the, the variability in pacing, especially for a race like Challenge Roth, which is you know a fairly flat course where you know the goal for an iron distance athlete, especially if it's if you're doing your very first iron distance, is to try to you know maintain this relentless steady effort and to not get too excited in the early stages and to not lose focus and have these big valleys and in, 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 in effort, uh, you know, throughout the race and to try to just keep uh, this moderate, steady, consistent effort and training with the power meter and racing with the power meter can, can be, uh, you know, a good tool and a good metric to help with your pacing strategy. Perfect. Yeah, no, very well put with the, the power meters and, it's so true. And that's the one thing it's, again, it comes into that barrier of entry thing, right? With the, the cost, it, it sometimes might deter people away from power meter training based off the cost, but you made a perfect point. You know, a lot of, uh, if you just use Zwift, that's some virtual power kind of set out for you there. But yeah, if it's within the budget, I think it's a, a great tool to have. Uh, I know I picked one up from four eyes there and I think it's done wonders. But again, in saying that when you just get introduced to a power meter, you might be unsure of where to start, right? Because you see these numbers now that are showing up on a bike computer per se, but you don't know, know exactly what to do with them. So now I know a lot of athletes, as you mentioned earlier, you guys do some power-based bike testing in some clinics. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So it, uh, what we do is the, the protocol we use is very simple. It's just, let's do a 20 minute time trial. And we do things a little bit differently. I think where we implement what we call our infamous blind protocol. And, and it's just a fancy way of saying, we don't want you to monitor any metrics during this 20 minute time trial. So you're not able to look at a power meter. You won't be able to look at a heart rate monitor. Uh, you won't actually know how you're pacing, uh, except you'll have to just go by your own internal cues and, uh, and, 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 and perceived exertion. And then we, so we'll have the athlete do this 20 minute time trial in, in an aero position if they're on a tri, tri bike. 
Um, because, uh, and that's important too, is sometimes people, when they do, do these time trials, they might not do it in an arrow position and that might inflate the Watts if they're not in the position that they're going to be racing in. So I'll have the athletes do a 20 minute, uh, time trial in the arrow position with the fan blowing on them. And, uh, and they might not know exactly how they're pacing, but they'll get some, some good insight and try to learn, you know, proper pacing. And then afterwards we'll ask them, how, how do you think you paced? And, did they go all too hard? Uh, did they finish really strong? Did they lose focus in the middle middle stages, or do they keep fairly good pacing throughout? It's interesting getting their feedback before they're able to look at the results afterwards. So, so we'll gain in, some insight um, uh, from from these t- occasional twenty minutes uh, these twenty minute time trials, and it it might help to you know establish what 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 might be some good zones to train in, but ultimately. These power-based tests—they're just, you know, they're one data sample, and uh, I, I think we have to sometimes be careful with establishing, you know, or, or estimating the FTP or, or estimating functional threshold power based off of a 20-minute time trial when you might not be super motivated or you might be a little bit tired or fatigued. Uh, it's really just one data sample. So, the the main way I think to try to estimate what might be your your power going to a race is based off of a previous race or based off of many, many data samples and just extrapolating from there to give a, a rough range and not being too precise with any kind of, you know, exact power targets because on race day, you know, you, you got to swim or you got to bike 112 miles after a 3.8 K swim. And maybe your glutes are a little bit tight or, or maybe, you know, it's a pancake flat course and, you know, you're going to be arrow the whole time and it's going to lead to slightly different watts or, or target than, than what, you know, what these pre estimates might, might suggest. So, so the main thing with the power meters, I think is just to kind of learn better pacing and then just to give rough ranges as to what might be a good goal for you to help you from maybe getting too excited uh, in the early stages of a long race. Great. No, that's excellent. It's a lot of great points on, on power. And, you know, as you just, you mentioned briefly, there, you were talking about swimming and the 3.8 K swim that you had to do beforehand. And, you know, I guess that's something that we always overlook because you, you see the, the bike and run seem so daunting in a full iron distance, but we just often forget that there's that, you know, that big infamous 3.8 K swim we still have to do. So how can athletes sort of best prepare for this particular discipline over the winter months in the pool? Like, uh, should we be looking for, you know, volume focused swims, reaching that four kilometer distance, just building that resistance to the distance in the pool? Or do you encourage swimming, you know, in different swim strokes or using different pool tools and that sort of thing? Or what are your thoughts on the swim? Yeah. So I think for all levels, whether you're a fairly beginner swimmer or fairly elite level or advanced uh, triathlon swimmer, I think that there's merit in everyone to be, you know, trying to at least implement different strokes into their training. So if you're a beginner swimmer and you, you can't really do backstroke or breaststroke very well, I think there's merit into still trying to include a little bit of that in the training. Uh, for the more advanced triathlon swimmers, I think that there's you know, great merit in, in including a mix of strokes, um, and, you know, to, to help complement the front crawl stroke. For all levels, I think that, you know, identifying the two or three main kind of drills that might be beneficial for them. Um, I know a lot of coaches and athletes might not be, you know, big fans of doing too much uh, drill work, but I think for a lot of swimmers, there is a lot of benefit to include some drill work in, uh, you know, and maybe focus on it a little bit more at certain periods of the year. So the fall, the winter time, maybe, a, you know, it would be a great time to focus on a little bit more uh, the technical side. But I think that there really is no substitute to just, you know, it's important to build fitness, to build endurance, to get to be ready for that 3.8K distance. So as you get closer and closer to the Ironman swim, you know, you want to be, uh, be ready to be able to swim consistently for such a long period of time. And because that swim is going to be in a lake or an ocean, and it could be choppy with bodies around you, you, you want to be able to, to prepare for those type of dynamics and, and being increasingly comfortable with being uncomfortable in the water and, or at the start line with lots of bodies around you. And, and there might be a little, you know, this chaos at the start of a race and 
finding some feet to maybe uh, stick with and um, being okay, being in close proximity with all these other bodies at the, that are, you know, going around a buoy at the same time as many other people. So there's all those type of dynamics that can be difficult to simulate in a 25 meter pool. But sometimes a lot of triathlon clubs will be able to simulate these triathlon specific swims, even in a pool in the wintertime. So sometimes we'll take out the lane ropes and we'll put a couple buoys in, in a 25 meter pool and we'll practice drafting. We'll practice race starts. We'll practice turning around uh, buoys and, and getting used to all these tri specific dynamics. Uh, and so you can simulate that in the, the wintertime, even if you don't have access to swimming in an open water, but ideally, uh, you know, in the month leading up into the race, ideally, you know, you, you, you try to choose uh, your races where if the swim is a concern, then you, you want to get used to wearing a wetsuit. If it's a wetsuit swim, you want to get used to practicing starts with other people and, and, and swimming at, you know, at the same pace with other people close by you so that it's not going to be so unfamiliar when the gun goes off in your, in your first triathlon of the year or your first Ironman of, uh, of your life. Um, but yeah, so the, the, I think the fall and the winter time, there's definitely some merit in, in using a mix of strokes and drills and, and also some equipment. We, we like to use uh, snorkel a lot. We, uh, we use, um, different types of paddles. Uh, the forum fulcrum paddles by Finisher are, are popular amongst our squad as are the freestyler paddles. Um, we like to use parachutes actually for, for strength training. We'll do some, you know, 50 meters with uh with the parachute and then maybe 150 meters regular free and then we'll put the parachute back on and it just adds a lot of resistance and strength training so we find we find doing stuff like that over the winter time you know helps to build that fitness and just offers a different stimulus as well awesome yeah no this is a really good piece of advice for for swimming and you know as you just kind of mentioned as you mentioned earlier on you know those benefits there's always those added benefits in training in a team environment and that Sounds like one of them too, right? Just being able to get together in a pool and still simulate those race-like conditions out in the open water when you're surrounded by other people, turning around boys, that sort of thing. So I think that's really cool and a lot of great insight on on the swim perspective. So no, it's perfect. And you know, as we begin to wrap things up here, I just want to ask if there's any common age group mistakes uh, when it comes to jumping up to the full iron distance that you uh, think listeners should be sort of mindful of if they're able to avoid it, if they can recognize it early on. Like, are there common things you recognize a lot of athletes tend to do, like things involving inadequate nutrition and training or training too much without an actual proper bike fit, so improper bike positioning, or we're just training too hard too frequently? Or what are your sort of thoughts on that that we can shine some light on? Yeah, well, I mean, all of the above from what you just uh, touched upon. So obviously, uh, we're training for a really, really long race. And, uh, uh, you know, with respect to bike fit, being comfortable on the bike, we sometimes tend to get uh, put too much stock into, you know, how much money a bike costs and, uh, and, and how aerodynamic it is. And, and while all that matters, uh, being comfortable on the bike for is, it tends to be even more important. So investing into a good professional bike fit can provide a really good return on investment and not just help your bike split, but help you run off of the bike and help to minimize injuries. Uh, on the injury topic, um, that is a very you know big one where you, your goal you know is to try to get to that start line feeling healthy, and sometimes it, that means it's better to to be ten percent undertrained going into a race than five percent overcooked and and not and being uh, you know a little bit and having uh, you know a bit of an injury going into the race. So we as most triathletes don't have the luxury as say an elite triathlete to sleep as much to nap as much to recover as well uh just so busy with you know work and family life that durability is is always a question that you should ask yourself as you know as to how much training uh should should be in the program and if sleep is compromised and nutrition is compromised um then then, you know, sometimes it's better to choose more rest, more recovery so that you're as healthy as possible at the start line. And so that your consistency of training leading up to the race is going to be uh, much higher, much better in, in the weeks leading in. Um, another thing would be uh, taking the time to practice your fueling and hydration plan in the many weeks leading up to the race. 
uh, and practicing what is going to be a good, you know, uh, thing to drink, a good thing to eat. Uh, do you want to focus more on on hydrate? You know, on uh, are you going to getting most of your calories from sport drink instead of gels or bars or cheeseburgers or something like that? Uh, so, <laughs> trying to figure out what's going to work best for you, and the only way really to do that is to practice it on your big training sessions, on your long bikes, on your long rides, and getting a good idea as to what what is what your gut is going to tolerate under those circumstances and over time, uh, figuring out what is going to be a good hydration and strategy for you and not worrying too much about what the pros are doing or what my training partner is doing and trying to, trying to mimic that instead learning what's going to be best for you. And then I think, um, with, you know, most age group athletes, time is often a, a big barrier where with work, with family, there's only so many hours in the day. So uh, just make sure that, you know, when you pick your race and the timing of that race in the calendar appropriately, where if you know it's going to be uh, the busiest time of the year for you with your other life priorities, then maybe choosing a short course race or a half iron race is going to be a better choice uh, for you at that part of the season. And that'll take a lot of the pressure off of, you know, the, 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 the amount of volume that's required for a full iron distance race. So I think a lot of people, they, they want to do that full iron race, but if the durability is not there or the, or the phase in their life is not quite ready to devote the, the long bikes, the long runs, then sometimes it's best to be patient, maybe uh, choose a half iron distance race instead of t- trying to tackle the full distance. Perfect. Yeah, no, so true. That was a ton of really great advice there. So time essentially being, yeah, one of the biggest things I guess that we struggle with as age groupers is trying to fit everything in, in order to make that end goal, which you set for yourself. So I think that's true. Uh, sometimes you just have to look at the schedule first and then realize what you're capable of doing around your, around your life schedule in order to best meet that goal. So I think that's perfect. And, you know, I think that's a great piece of advice to end this off on. Now, if you are up for it, I'd like to see if you want to do the one minute Q&A fire round just to see how many questions we can get out in one minute. You in for that? Let's do it. All right. So we'll, uh, I'm going to start the timer here. We've got one minute and we're just going to ask you some base, basic short answer questions and we'll see how many we can get out here. So if okay. you're going to go, I'll start. Okay. So what would be your favorite race distance? Uh, super sprint. Oh, nice. So what would be your favorite local race or even the race with uh, the biggest LPC turnout? The Guelph one triathlon. It'll be club champs next year. Perfect. And so looking at Kona just ahead next week, uh, who do you think will take it for the male side and the female side? Well, we, you'd be a fool to bet against Daniela Reef, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, right? So the, the Vegas odds would be on her and probably, probably for Dano, but you know, I, th- I, a lot of people are downplaying Alistair Brownlee's chances. And I found that it's, you can't bet against Alistair Brownlee a lot of the time. So it'll be very interesting to see. I think a lot will depend on how windy it'll be on the bike. And that'll determine if guys like Patrick Langa can, uh, can be in close contention going into the run. Perfect. Well said, good picks. And now, uh, what's one race on your bucket list that you've never done, but would, would have liked to one day. Escape from Alcatraz. Oh, there you go. Uh, what's the most beautiful place you've traveled for triathlon? Oh boy. Uh, I've been fortunate where I've, I've, I've traveled around the world, uh, for races. Uh, Rio de Janeiro was, a was a good one. Um, and, uh, Italy was also beautiful. Uh, Greece as well. Wow. Nice. So you've been around some amazing places. So that's good. And then, you know, we're past a minute, but just, uh, the last question here anyway, uh, who, who was, or is your biggest influence in triathlon? Uh, so in terms of mentors, I've been very fortunate to have many mentors and, uh, actually I'll go with one of the local ones here in Guelph, uh, cause it's such a great tri community. Craig Taylor from the Guelph triathlon project has um, been, uh, has had an amazing influence on my triathlon evolution. Amazing. Perfect. Well, you know what? That's a wrap, man. I can, uh, obviously keep going all day here, but I'm sure you got a busy rest of the day here planned. So I won't keep you here any longer, but you know, as we kind of wrap this up, uh, of course, running a team of that size as we mentioned earlier, it's not really possible without some of the support from sponsors. And uh, do you have any sponsors for the team that you'd like to give a shout out to? Yeah, we're fortunate that we've got lots of support. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'd love to have this opportunity to give a shout out to our, our main LPC sponsors. And that's First Endurance Canada, uh, Pearl Azumi, Dundas Speed Shop, 
Echelon Wheels, uh, Decos Orthotic Solutions, Hudog Athletics, VeloFix, Stroke and Stride Multisport, Zizu, and Electrocom Canada. Perfect. No, it's a great list. And like I always say, you know what, we're thankful for having sponsors like that kind of day in day out to, you know, help teams out, help athletes and, and show support along the way. So that's very cool. And always love to hear shout outs to those guys. So thanks a lot to all those sponsors, for the LPC team. And, you know, as we kind of wrap it up uh, for those who already don't follow you, follow the team, that sort of thing, where's the best place they can kind of learn more about LPC. Our website is teamlpc.ca, and we have, um, uh, we're on Instagram. Uh, so learning personal coaching uh, is the Instagram handle and on uh, Facebook as well. So uh, search for learning personal coaching on Facebook and uh, yeah, I uh, would love to have others uh, follow along and uh, reach out to us. Awesome. Well, that's great, man. That That's a great place to end it off. And uh, thanks again coming on and all the best. Appreciate that. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. Perfect. Take care. Take care. Thanks. Well, guys, there you have it. James is an incredible role model in triathlon and he's a wealth of knowledge. I'm super glad we're able to have him on today's show. Now, guys, if you want to hear more podcasts like these, then hit that subscribe button and you can follow me on Instagram at pacing.and.racing. You can also check us out on YouTube by searching pacing and racing. And lastly, if you did like this episode, please just take two minutes to leave a kind review on the podcast channel as this helps us get heard by more listeners through the podcast platform algorithms. Anyways, thanks so much, guys. We'll talk to you next time.